It's time to talk to Tommy. Tommy Heinsohn joins the podcast, his candid thoughts on Robert Parrish and how he thinks his 60s teams would fare against the 1986 Celtics. It's the Thursday Locked On Celtics. Millie's, let's go! Rain and Jay's back with the vengeance back. All the real Celtics fans in attendance. This is the truth like 34. It's like walking in the garden when you hear the roars. Crowd goes crazy. Most in depth coverage on the daily, mainly podcast royalty. The content kings when you talk about the franchise with 17 rings. Focus like Danny at the deadline. Global with it got a local feel like the red line, the blue line, the green line. Play it in between time. I'ma throw my C's jersey on in the meantime and press play. When the F's done, I can't wait until the next day. Trying to stay in tune with the C's is the best way. Melly. John Corrales here of MassLive.com, welcoming you back to another Lockdown Celtics podcast. Thanks for coming back for this historical deep dive. And this week has just been one hell of a week. Danny Ainge, the first two days, the re-release of the Robert Parrish interview, which I know a lot of people may have heard, but a lot of people haven't. So the re-release of Chief was great. And now, two days of Tommy Heinsohn. Tommy is on the podcast uh, I'm splitting it up into two pieces. I'm actually going the second half first uh, because I talked to him about the 70s. And originally I was hoping to continue the 70s conversation on Monday and then do the 80s as we continued on. But we had a delay in the podcast with Tommy. So I only just got to talk to him a couple of days ago while we were already in the midst of the 1980s. And then the Danny Ainge thing kind of came along. So little out of order, historically wise, but that's fine. Uh, Tommy is great. Tommy is full on Tommy. And in this episode, we get his thoughts on the 1980s, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, the way they came along to save the NBA, why the NBA needed saving in the first place, all of that. And we talk about the 86 Celtics. We talk about how his teams would have fared against the 86 Celtics. We talk uh, about Robert Parrish and some Candid thoughts from Tommy about Robert Parrish. So it's all coming up here right now. My conversation, part one of my conversation with Hall of Fame player, Hall of Fame coach, NBC Sports Boston color commentator, the Tommy Heinz. You started, when did you start broadcasting with uh, Mike Gorman? That was the early 80s, right? I was in 79. I got a call from Dave Gavitt, Dom. Uh, uh, Providence College, and uh, they were just going to start broadcasting all the uh, Providence College games on television, and uh, now that I was unemployed, uh, he called me up and asked me if I would like to do the games, the Providence College games, because I, I knew Dave from years years ago in the college ranks, and he had been an assistant coach at Worcester Academy, and we used to go over there and work out and all the other stuff. So uh, I said, fine. And we, Mike Gorman and I ended up together. And uh, we've been together ever since. Uh, so you, you have now, you've gone from a player, you've gone to a coach, and now you've got a front row seat basically for the rest of Celtics history. Uh, the 1980s bring us like Larry Bird. So Larry Bird comes in. There's a big turnaround. Um, can you... Like set the scene so people understand exactly like 
that era, we hear about Larry and Magic kind of saving the NBA. Being there, part of that era where the viewership is down, what are you hearing? What What's the sense within the league? And, and what was it like when Larry comes along to pull things out of there? Well, a couple of things happened. Um, uh, I mean, all sports were being hit with uh, the drug problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, it appeared that uh, the NBA was uh, uh, was being hit the most, and uh, so kind of lost favor with the public uh, doing that. But also, it was right in the middle of uh, of uh, the the uh, racial era, and uh, it would become more and more of a black league, and and um, uh, people had to really love basketball because it became very uh, personal after a while with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so uh, the other aspect that kind of gets left in the dust is that um, CBS at that point had the uh, NCAA games, and um, they ended up doing uh, uh, that Michigan State, Indiana State final game uh, um, their senior year, Magic and, and Bird. And uh, uh, it, it, everybody was totally interested in that game. And uh, it was like, wow. So it, it caught on. He caught on, the two of them. And then Magic came into the league. And uh, I, I think Magic came in the league ahead of Bird, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about it, but uh, anyway, um, Bird was uh, going to go back to Indiana State, and uh, uh, finish out his four years or his, his four-year playing eligibility. And uh, so I'm doing television, and I see Bird. Uh, for the first time, uh, I'm doing a broadcast of his game in the opening of the season. And um, uh, Red, in fact, Red had asked me to scout Bird the summer before. And I went down to Louisville, and they were having a university games, uh, uh, one of the international games. And uh, Bird was uh, trying out with the team, so... And it was extremely hot uh, for the three days, four days that the players were down there. I was going down for the weekend because they said every they, all they were going to do for the two days was scrimmage with the players instead of you know go through drills and and um, so I went down and it ends up that uh, Bird never played uh, in these games and. Uh, uh, Everybody kept talking about how great Larry Bird was, and he never played. He didn't play in the game. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say he didn't play. He did play in the game, but he wasn't capable of playing in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time he went to catch the ball, he couldn't even catch the ball. He was so dehydrated. Uh, he he was not, you know. Uh, you you on what his performance was that day. You wouldn't pick him in the draft. Period. <laughs> Uh, but they all kept talking about how great he was during this, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, so, uh, that, uh, that ends up, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, 
I do a, a, a game later, you know, after, um, uh, and uh, Red's there watching. And when I went back uh, to uh, uh, Red, uh, I, I said, Red Bird didn't play. I said, they're all talking about him, but um, if, <laughs> I forget who the heck it was. It was another player that really stood out that, it was a Hall of Fame player, Moncrief, Sidney Moncrief. I said, but you get a shot at mid-Sydney, Moncrief, take Sydney. He's pretty good. <laughs> and um, uh, I said, it's unfair for me to say anything about Burr because he wasn't, uh, he was not with the program. And um, uh, and then uh, the next year, I'm doing a broadcast and uh, uh, first five minutes, uh, you you see, Bird is uh, what he's capable of. I mean, he was first five minutes passing the ball, and you could you could tell he knew how to play. So, and Red looked at me, and I looked at Red. <laughs> we both shook our heads. So, um, and uh, the two of them, when they they created the interest, white against black, and. Uh, passing basketball, unselfish basketball. There was a whole bunch of things that came together. Um, uh, the NBA, uh, uh, the way CBS was telecasting the games, uh, less is more. They weren't trying to put it, you know, a whole bunch of games on and all this other stuff. So it um, it was a combination of things, but it caught on because. They were both um, uh, uh, players that uh, were unselfish players, and one was black and the other one was white. Take your pick. That's what it was coming down to with a lot of people. I mean, even during their careers, uh, you heard black players talk about him that if he, uh, if he, Larry Bird wasn't white, he wouldn't be the MVP. You know, right? So, I mean, there was that going on, and uh, uh, so. It, 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 those are all the elements that were at play during uh, that period of time that they, but they're both great players and, uh, and both brought their teams up to uh, unusual standards. And I mean, Magic played four positions in the game. Uh, you know, uh, when Kareem went out against Philadelphia, he became, uh, I, if I remember correctly, the MVP of, the, of uh, the uh, playoffs. I mean, when he's a young player, God. <laughs> so, there you are. I mean, that's two of You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Do you think, because you were coaching during the ABA-NBA merger, you think that was kind of where we started to see, like, the racial divide between fans? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't think it was the ABA. What was happening is that uh, uh, the black guys are great athletes. I mean, uh they um, and the game was starting to be played in the playgrounds and in the schoolyards and uh, 
uh, as a white society became more affluent, uh, uh, kids like me who played in the schoolyards and, uh, you know, kids around New York and that type of thing, uh, there were as many of them. And the, and the black guys were great athletes and, and played the game. And uh, so they were coming in. They were getting picked. I mean, I was the last white guy uh, on the Boston Celtics. Uh, and the Celtics had the first all five black starting team. Willie Knowles, when I got hurt in, my, in 65, my last season, he took over for me along with... Uh, so Sam and Casey and and Satcher Russell played. So they had the five black guys, and that's what was happening. I mean, just uh, better athletes, really good players. And when a white player came along, that was as good. They made it. But, I mean, it was uh, Red was great in in picking. Uh, he went for talent. He didn't care the color. And so. Back into you, you've got this kind of like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. It's certainly an element in all of this. Um, but Larry Bird is joined by Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, 1981. That team is loaded. Uh, they win the finals. Uh, Tiny Archibald. Um, to see to see Larry Bird kind of like excel so quickly and to have those guys. What was your first impression of like watching that big three together? Even though McHale was coming off the bench at that time. Well, a big three that really wasn't uh, the one you just mentioned. The big three was uh, Bird, uh, Maxwell. Right. And, Maxwell always and, likes uh, to say big four because he always seems yeah, to be well, left Maxwell out. Well, Maxwell started. McHale was coming off the bench. Uh, and Maxwell uh, played because he played the tougher guy on the front line. Because uh, uh, he was a better athlete and he was a good defender. Uh, Bird uh, probably made uh, I don't know how many all defensive teams, but he couldn't guard a guy individually. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd eat him up, uh, but not. Uh, that's why Mikhail. Um, um, Later on, and um, uh, Maxwell ended up uh, playing the tougher people with the front lines because uh, it freed up Bird to be the, the middle linebacker, you know, and break up plays. That's how smart he was. And, uh, so they, they got the best out of everybody. And Maxwell was the um, uh, MVP of, uh, of uh, that playoff, and uh, uh, he was sensational. And uh, uh, then he got in, he got hurt and whatever, and they thought he was malingering. And and uh, so uh, they ended up trading him away. And that's when Mikhail got into that starting lineup. But uh, Mikhail, Parrish, and Berg, uh, the three of them, uh, man, they, they were not fast. And uh, I used to, I was doing... Uh, CBS games, and I can remember the Hawks were going to play the Celtics, and, and uh, uh, the coach of the Hawks holding practice, and he's telling us uh, uh, television people, we got to run to beat the Celtics. And I go to practice, there's not one thing about running that they do. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's 
Des Bird and, and Magic and Adam Bird and Mikhail and Paris against Dominique. And um, uh, you, you looked at those three guys, and they played semi-fast basketball. If the guy was open on a break, but they didn't push the ball. They, they really didn't create a tempo to the game. So they beat people down with uh, their passing ability. All of them could pass. And uh, they, they had some great scores. They had great inside game, and they had Bird on the outside. Then they got Dennis Johnson and, and Danny Ainge. And, uh, everything fell into place. But uh, uh, getting a big three uh, was, you know, that's probably the best trade other than uh, the Russell uh, getting Bill Russell, uh, that was probably the best trade in the history of the game. And uh, they traded a guy, Joe Barry Carroll, who was the first pick in the draft that the Celtics had the rights to, uh, to get uh, uh, San Francisco's um, first pick plus uh, uh, Robert Parrish, who didn't play a lot, but you could see he could be a player. And, uh, uh, Bill Fitch was the guy who knew a lot about McHale from camps and stuff like that. Uh, so that's why they pulled that one off. But getting back to the best trade they ever made is they got Bill Russell for the ice uh, for the ice capades to yes. go to Rochester. Uh, the owner of the Royals uh, trade the rights uh, or the opportunity to take Russell uh, for. Uh, an appearance uh, at his arena in, in Rochester of the ice capades. That's an unheard of trade. <laughs> yeah, that's a wild one. Well, though that team ultimately became the Sacramento Kings, and you know that explains a lot about the Sacramento Kings. That's that's their lineage. That's their history. Making trades for the ice capades. Uh, I don't yeah. think they've ever had a, a much success after that. Uh, you mentioned Bill Fitch. Uh, Fitch is like a fiery guy. Um, and then he ultimately leaves for your former teammate, Casey Jones. What did you see in Fitch when you were, when he was coaching? And then when, when Casey came over, you obviously played with Casey, but you know, him as a coach, what, what were you seeing there? Well, uh, I know I was very friendly with Bill Fitch and, uh, Red and I and Bill Fitch and, uh, Pete Newell, uh, who, uh, arranged a tour. Uh, in Japan, and uh, Bill Fitch was going to coach one team. I was going to coach the other, and so Red got to know uh, uh, Bill Fitch, and Bill Fitch is a very friendly guy. And uh, when I went out the door, and um, uh, after Talons uh, tried to coach the team, and that didn't work out, uh, and he got Fitch. And Fitch, uh, from my experiences, at the end of each season, I would get, I, I would have. Each team filmed, and I would spend the summer going over the film, like they do each day with tapes now. Mm-hmm. I did it with film and have to stop the film. And I, you know, look for different things and what have you, and uh, come up with my own ideas of how to play the game. And, but Bill Fitch was really a smart basketball guy. He introduced a lot of new things into the game. And uh, some of them I picked up, quite frankly, they were good. Uh, and, you know, he's an affable guy. He's, he's always had a quip for the press, so everybody in the press loved him. And, uh, 
uh, yeah, he knew basketball. So when he got to Boston, uh, uh, he inherits his team and he gets Larry Bird. Oh, geez. <laughs> right away, Bird turns the thing around. You know? Right. And um, so uh, somewhere along the line, I'm not quite sure why, uh, he wore out his welcome with the players for some reason or other. That, that's what I believe. And um, uh, after they lost to Milwaukee, uh, and, and there was some, dis- seemed like there was some dissension on that team with him or whatever. And there was some dissension with Red in him, which uh, um, ended up being a difficulty. I mean, one of the things that uh, if you're going to coach the Celtics, you had to be aware of is that this was Red's team. <laughs> right. All right. And when we won a title, I'd be in the last car in a motorcade, and I'd be, I'd be <laughs> in the back row on the, on the balcony. Well, Bill Fitch, if he was he won a title, I mean, in, in uh, Ohio, they would have run him for governor. Right. And, uh, you know, Red was very aware of, his position and uh, the position of the coach with the ownership and, and Fitch bought a condo in the same development as the owner of the Celtics. <laughs> this was not good. And, uh, uh, Bill Fitch, uh, got in trouble in that playoffs. And, uh, he wasn't going to make it back. Follow us on our social channels at LO Celtics on Twitter and at Lockdown Celtics on Instagram. Uh, well, I can tell you, I talked to Danny Ainge just a couple days ago about Fitch, and I can confirm your suspicions that the players were were not exactly enthralled with him. There was definitely some dissension. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Fitch ends up taking a job at Houston, and he's the guy that recommended me to Houston, okay? <laughs> and when I turned it down, he took it. So, uh, you know, that's what all happened. But Casey Jones uh, was, you wouldn't think he was a tactical coach, okay? But he was. Uh, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, he, uh, Bernie Bickerstaff, when he was with Washington, really was the coach of the team. Now, Casey Jones was uh, the coach of the team. But Casey has a way about him, even as a player. Uh, you love the guy, all right? And uh, he's he was a fierce competitor. I come out, and, and uh, I mean, he was a dogged competitor. I mean, he'd, he'd kill you to, to win. And uh, uh, that caught on with the players. And and uh, what he did after what Bill Fitch was doing, uh, he turned them loose to beat themselves, which is what Red Alvac did, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I did, and which Fitch didn't do. Okay, and uh, uh, 
that's that was the beauty of uh, Casey Jones. He could let uh, players play to their strengths, what they considered to be their strengths, and and try and minimize their weaknesses. And uh, so he was pretty good at it, and uh, he won a couple of titles. It's funny because you know you you think back to Red and obviously how successful he was as a coach, and then the tree. Like you come in and you have that style, and you are coaching Don Nelson, and Don Nelson goes off and, you know, Nelly Ball, and that's a similar style, and KC has a, a similar style, although not quite as fast break. Although that, those 80 Celtics, they weren't a, considered a fast break team, but you, you saw them you saw them move the ball. They're, they they would pass the ball up the floor. They weren't exactly running and gunning, but, like, they, they weren't exactly no, walking it up. Yeah, the system wasn't to, to uh, 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 play play a pace to the game. Uh, if a guy broke free going up the court, I mean, if there was a fast break opportunity, they took it. You know, they were smart enough to see and they could make the long pass and all of that stuff. But uh, uh, the fast break pace game that uh, I was coaching, uh, man, uh, was you, you if. The ball hit the floor, uh, went through the net and hit the floor. The other team scored. If they, you let that ball hit the floor, you were out of the game. Wow. You were supposed to catch it before it hit the floor, step out of bounds, and on the first pass, find the furthest guy up the floor. So that the pass, the first pass of the ball would defeat, uh, would beat two or three guys down the floor. That's what it was all about. The pace was the first pass. Right. And you never see that in a game anymore. Uh, and uh, guys that tell me about they want to coach fast break basketball, and I go watch what they're doing, and they have to bring the big guy back to br- put the ball in play to bring the point guard back. <laughs> That's never going to be a fast I break. I never understood okay. that. I never understood why the center had to inbound the ball. Well, what was going on is that uh, uh, they put pressure on the ball handler and that stuff. So they have the big guy come back and act as a pick off the pressure guy. So that's how that all started. And uh, uh, I have no idea why they continue it. But uh, uh, when I talk to coaches uh, and I talk about uh, – uh, when I was a player, we used to fast break off of the other team's made free throws. And they look at me like, uh, what? <laughs> and, and I'd say, we, we'd get two or three baskets a game off of, uh, when the other team made, uh, uh, a free throw. And, um, I, so I ex- explained to them, now you don't have a concept of basketball where you have half court. And five guys and picks and you move the ball and got to be so many passes or whatever you're running. Uh, I said, uh, and every once in a while you use, uh, uh, to the speed or the ball to get to somebody that's up the court. I said, now you guys have become absolutely geniuses on half court offenses and everything else. What we were doing was playing half-court basketball, full-court, mm-hmm. where we're setting picks 
before the ball is inbounded and setting guys running and uh, all right, I said, why don't you think about setting picks in the backcourt to free guys up? And they look at me like I'm from Mars. <laughs> and and I mean, when I was a player, uh, I mean, Russell used to score, and it was primarily Russell would get the baskets because we we block out that big guy and and pick him and uh, get the ball to Kuzi, and Kuzi would throw these bomb passes to Russell. And, and uh, after a while, the other teams caught on to it a little bit. And so we took uh, a big guy and put that big guy down in the corner. And that was my idea. So you took defenders uh, uh, off the rebound, and you had a potential advantage of... of uh, getting that guy at the floor after the first pass was made. So he was an option for that one defender that might be back there. So, uh, I mean, there was a whole bunch of stuff on a fast break that uh, these people don't even know exist. Mm. Well, that that Larry Bird team, I guess they didn't need to be doing all of that because when you've got Larry... And then you, then you get Dennis Johnson in, into the mix. Um, and that... You talk about trades that that work out very well and, and great trades. The trade for Dennis Johnson is a huge one because that that uh, gives that Larry Bird, McHale, Parrish, uh, that that big three team post post uh, Maxwell, uh, a guy that they can rely on, a defensive guy in the backcourt, and now that starting five, DJ, Ainge, uh, and the big three, th- that's like the next generation of really, really great Celtics teams, some of the best Celtics teams in, in franchise history. Yeah. Well, they talk about that 86 team being the best, uh, you know, please give me a break. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, don't, we, don't agree? No, we would beat those guys. Why? We had eight guys in the Hall of Fame, okay? We had a Hall of Famers coming off the bench. Uh-huh. Okay. We would have beat those guys. I mean, we we would have run there. We would have done what uh, what they were thinking of trying to do with um, uh, uh, Atlanta. You know, we're going to run because the Celtics are slow. Well, we would have run, and the Celtics uh, we were playing against would have been slow. Uh huh. So you think you think the mid sixties? Let me tell you. Let me tell you why I make that statement. Yeah, sure. All right, there's an all-star game in L.A. I forget what year it was. And uh, the West got all the scorers, Bob Pettit, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, uh, everybody that can score. You know, like they practically had the top ten scorers of the league in that uh, West all-star team. And the East all-star team was Russell, me, Jack Lyman, Cousy, and I forget who the who the heck else it was, uh, Oscar Robinson. And uh, the L.A. papers are saying, oh, these these guys, will, they'll kill you, you know. They'll kill you. Uh, they, they, they may be the first team, this West team, to score 200 points. Well, we went out there, the East team, and we kicked their ass, okay? <laughs> Won the game. And it was all speed. And... When we would have practices, uh, Red would pit the big guys against the small guys. 
in scrimmages. And the small guys always won. All right? So I'm, take, I'm telling you this from what I know actually works, okay? Uh-huh. Who would have beat them? Because they didn't have enough speed in the lineup. That's interesting. I, I mean, look, I've, I'm, I've obviously never seen that team play, and I can only go by the stories. So um, we see these, this 86 Celtics team as a team that's just, you know, so good. But, you know, the league was different in, in 1986. Um, there, are, there are obviously more teams in 1986. Um, so it's, it's, it's a different era, but I'll take your word for it. I'll take your word for it. Um, obviously you're not going to say you, you're going to lose. I tell you, I tell you that speed wins out. All right. Speed is important for 84 of the 94 feet. Mm-hmm. Size is important for 15 feet. That's all. Okay. And you could take advantage of <laughs> all that other stuff to beat those bigger guys down the floor or get them out of position. And... Uh, so with this 86 team, I mean, you're sitting there, you're watching this, this 86 team. What what made the 86 team so special? What was that added element? What? Well, they, were, they had great fun playing with each other. They were joking. Uh, it was a uh, it was not a me me team. Uh, they got uh, Walton uh, and uh, who should call it? Uh, who were the other guys on that team? Uh, shooters, forget. Oh. Uh, in in '86, you're yeah. you're starting you're starting Danny Ainge. You're bringing um, you had uh, Carlisle off the bench. You had Seesting off the bench. Um, Wedman, uh, but you're you're starting you're starting five was DJ Danny, Larry Kevin, and Robert Parrish, and then you had uh, Seesting, Walton, Wedman, Carlisle. As your main guys off well, the bench. Well, Walton, Walton is a Hall of Fame player, but nobody on that other bench, that bench there, is up to anywhere near the quality of the bench of one of the Celtic teams I played on. Right. All right. Add to that <laughs> the pace of the game. When I say the pace of the game, I'm talking about. Uh, we're taking 110 shots, 115 shots. Yeah, you guys took a lot of shots. I mean, that was the that was the the way you won. Yeah. I mean, these guys now are so precise. Uh, I mean, if you get to 90 shots the way they play the game now, uh, yeah. you know that's a big deal. The '86 team took 89 shots per game. Yeah, well, we we would have scored beaucoup more points because we were absolutely got the ball past two or three of those guys going up the court. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I can't, I, I'm not going to argue uh, because like I said, like my, this 86 team is like my childhood. This 86 team is the one that I watched. So I obviously have yeah. an affinity for that. Um, this, this to me is the pinnacle because I have an emotional kind of attachment to growing up and falling in love with basketball to these right. guys. Right. Um, well, I mean, uh, I agree with that. I mean, uh, 
they were fun to watch. They they uh, they had the same type of attitude that the teams I played on. You know, it wasn't about who scored; it was uh, us winning, and uh, uh, that's what they did. And and they had great players accepting challenges. I mean, Bird loved to to be the guy taking the last shot and could do it. And Mikhail developed into the one uh, one of the top flight uh, all time players down on the low box and. Parrish, uh, Parrish is the only guy that I think it's uh, overestimated. I mean, uh, he's in there because of the, quote, big three. Uh, he's a good, he was a good player, you know, very good player, but uh, they 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 get put him on the 50 greatest players? No way. Really? You think yeah. you think Parrish was just uh, beneficiary? Parrish was a, a good player. Uh huh. Okay, and he filled in gaps. He he more than played his position. All right, he rebounded. He played some defense, but uh, uh, like Walton is a Hall of Famer. Right. Like Bill Russell is a Hall of Famer. Like uh, Will Chamberlain was a Hall of Famer, right? And so, they played the total game, and they were the total game. I mean, he's in there because he was he was a, uh, on this team. So, do you you don't think that Parrish on I don't a think he was one of the top fifty players of all time. Of all time. Okay. Uh, you know, and I think he was a hell of a player. Right. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, he is a Hall of Famer. Yeah. But just on the tier of Hall of Fame players, he's not at that Bill Russell. And I don't think anybody puts him there either. But, not. I mean, Russell no, he was, was special. In, he's in the Hall of Fame because that team was what they were. He was a significant part of that team. Okay. Um, so that team... I mean that that team won a title, but things things kind of fell apart for them. Do you do you remember uh, what what was what was the the feeling around the team? Because after they won they won the title and then they had the second overall pick and they picked Len Bias and then he ends up tragically dying. Uh, yeah. What what was the feeling around the team at that point? I mean, and it's kind of a crappy question, but you know that that's that's not only a tragedy, but that's that's devastating to the entire team that thought this was a key piece for for them moving forward. Yeah, well, uh, you always want to try and pick up a, a, a quality player. And, uh, uh, I mean, Len Bias was supposed to be another Michael Jordan. I, you know, if he was half of that, he'd be pretty good. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, so when you lose players like that. I mean, and Bill Walton was a big factor on that 86 team. He'd come in and, you know, he's one of the, if not one of the best, he might be the best passing center that ever played. All right. And he'd get in the game and birded cutting and boom, behind the back, you know, flip passes. And, and Walton's a great player and coming off the bench without Without Bill Walton being a, a really integral part, uh, 
I mean, Wedman wasn't going to carry him. Seasing wasn't going to carry him. I mean, these are these are little uh, things that you put in the dike. You know, to stop it from bleeding. It's not the dike. You know, right? And uh, they weren't able to get uh, even good players for the bench. What did the bench end up being after? After what in 1987? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at that point, um, they had <laughs> the Greg Kite. They'd gotten Greg Kite, um, Fred Roberts. Siege thing was still on the bench, um, but that that bench was kind of kind of thin. You're you're looking at 20 minutes a game from Siege thing, 15 minutes a game from Fred Roberts, 13 from Scott Wedman. Uh, Walton was kind of done at that point. Um, Kite gave him ten minutes, so there were that that eighty seven team was, we'll say top heavy. Yep, <laughs> that's what happened. They, uh, you know, uh, one of those things. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you got to. I mean, uh, uh, if bias was half as good as he was, he would have been able. You would have been able to uh, carry on. I mean. When I played, we picked up Havlicek. Havlicek was the sixth man. Yes. Uh, right? Until practically, uh, well, he, he was not even a starter when I was playing. Became a starter under Russell. Uh, and uh, that's what happened. You, the guy would come from the bench. <laughs> He'd be a hell of a player. Right. right. Bringing Havlicek yeah, off the Sam bench. Jones and Casey Jones, okay? And that they were never able to do that. That's what I like about uh, the current coach. The current coach, uh, Stevens, he tries to win, but he also develops players. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I mean, uh, as an all-time coach who would never think of putting – potential mistakes into the lineup. Uh, you, you know, uh, you knew somebody was going to create mistakes. Uh, he puts guys in, and he gives them a sense of confidence. And he lets them early believe that they can play in the league. All right? And he, he's terrific at uh, building players. Um, you wait and see out of this group. I mean, uh he, he developed uh, 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 the, the guys that are really uh, – the guy in particular is um, – uh, well, not Tatum. Uh, Jalen? Jalen Brown. Uh, I mean, that's what happened with a Havlicek. And what happened with a lot of guys is that the guy got a chance to play and all of a sudden, he's smart enough to add to his game. When Havlicek first showed up, the only shot he had was the shot that he made in that over, triple overtime game off the backboard. Mm-hmm. And, and that was his pet shot. Okay. He couldn't, he couldn't dribble the ball. He couldn't shoot from outside. All right. The next summer, he came back. From uh, you know, next season came back from uh, the summer, and he had an outside shot. He could dribble the ball. 
I mean, he worked his ass off on his offense. He became his coach. That's what it takes. But you got to play, too, and, and be in the right system and with the right coach. But that's what happened. I mean, Casey Jones was not a developer of players. He's more what, like a ego kind of like get the most out no, of guys. No, he's like Doc Rivers. Doc yes. Rivers didn't want yes. to be involved in developing players. Right, right. But he got the he got the most out of he he got those guys to give them everything that they had. The star players, yeah. he kind of got them to. I mean, when I when I was a player with the Celtics and we got a new guy, Red would uh, say to me, "What does this kid need to do?" You know, and I'd, I'd, I'd work with the kid. I developed some of the guys mm-hmm. in, in, uh, that played on those teams. You know, so they, one time he came to me and he said, uh, why is Mel Counts having trouble rebounding the ball? I said, well, Red, watch his hands when he goes up for a rebound. He doesn't grab the ball each hand on the side of the basketball. He grabs the ball where half the basketball is uh, open. He's when he catches it, it's almost his hands are behind the ball. What? So I used to coach things like that with these yeah. guys and shooting the ball. I taught Don Cheney to shoot the ball. I taught Jojo how to how to uh, pass and you know what to look for in a fast break and. Wow. I mean, so, I mean, you were kind of like groomed. You were like a coach before you were a coach. Uh, I, yeah, well, I was doing it. And then I was in the management end of the life insurance business doing the same thing, teaching right. people. So that was my advice when Paul Silas became a coach. I said, Paul, you know more about basketball than anybody you think is uh, going to help you in that step. What you need is go to uh, San Diego State and get a, uh, take some courses in management. Mm-hmm. How to manage people. That's all he needed. He, you know, Silas is a smart guy. Tommy is going to tell it how he sees it, and it's great, and I just, I just love him for it. Uh, shout out to Tommy for spending a lot of time with me uh, there was a 90-minute conversation. Uh, shout out to NBC Sports Boston for hooking it up. And tomorrow you get part two. So Tommy and I sat down. Like I said, it was supposed to be a quick conversation. The original intent was for the 70s. And so I started the conversation talking about the 70s with him. And then I said, hey, are, do you have time? Do you want to talk about the 80s? And he's like, sure, let's go. And I was like, yeah, baby. So we had like a second podcast and really like an hour and a half of talking to Tommy Heinsohn about basketball. Really just um, a pleasure and honor. Uh, And tomorrow we're going to go backwards and we're going to go into the 70s. And we're going to get his side, his perspective on coaching the Boston Celtics through the 1970s. So you got to be sure to tune into that 
because that's another great conversation. So subscribe to the podcast. If this is your first time listening, subscribe to the podcast because that will get you the the podcast once it drops. As soon as it comes out, you'll get it to your device. You don't have to wait for my tweet. You don't have to wait for someone else to share it. It'll come right to you, right to your device. This is the number one Boston Celtics podcast in the world, okay? The number one rated podcast in the world. So you want to make sure you have this podcast with you on a daily basis. Still going Monday through Friday. Have not missed a day since the hiatus. Still going Monday through Friday. So subscribe and tell your friends, if you have subscribed, that they should be listening to the podcast. Five-star rating, good written review, all that stuff, it all means something. It all matters. The reason why this podcast is number one is because so many of you have done all that stuff already. So very much appreciated. Uh, really am uh, just enjoying doing all of this stuff. I hope you're enjoying it too. This has been the Locked On Celtics Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.